Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. And with that lovely melody from Sharon B, we're back with Season 2 of Mutual Presents and our weekly coverage of the sessions from MadCon 2021 Virtual. Today's discussion is entitled, How to Approach Your Project, and was our second session from Friday, July 23rd. Your host is Lothar Tuppen, with panelists Michael Wilhelm, Bill Arrowwood, and Robert Arnold. Pick up your MadCon tickets for our live meet next summer in sunny Halifax, Nova Scotia at mad-con.com. That's M-A-D-symbol-C-O-N.com. Now, on with the show. She's got such a great voice. She's in all my <laughs> What was that, Michael? What? I didn't say anything. Okay, never mind. All right. Welcome, everyone. Um, and we are at the panel, How to Approach Your Project. Um, I'm Lothar Tuppen. I've been acting, writing, and producing in the audio drama world since 2010. I'm the creator <laughs> of The Sword of the Prince and Tatters, The Degasian, and The Tainted Noctuary, among other productions. And I'm proud to be a founding member of the Mutual Audio Network. This particular panel is about beginnings. Um, you want to do an audio drama production. What do you do? Do you have an idea? How do you make it work? How do you get one if you just want to make one and you don't do it? How do you start planning this out? It's a little bit of a vague question and um, because that's the vague part of the process. And with me for this uh, panel is Robert Arnold with a group of friends. Bob co-founded Chatterbox Audio Theater in 2007. He served as the executive director of that organization for 10 years guiding it through 100 productions, nonprofit status, and the creation of a dedicated studio space. After retiring Chatterbox in 2017, Bob enjoyed life as an audio drama listener and a fan for a few years. In, in 2021, he returned with Spoken Signal Audio Drama, a new, smaller, more personal venture. Spoken Signal's first production, a five-part horror comedy called The Waverly House Haunting, was released this spring. Bob is a grant writer for a fine arts museum in Memphis, Tennessee, and an adjunct professor teaching a course on grant writing. Thanks so much for being here, Bob. What a thrill. Thanks, Lothar. Thank you. And next up, we have Bill Arrowwood. Bill founded Liberty City Radio Theater in 2016, producing live stage radio shows in Philadelphia, writing and directing a dozen original stage shows as a comedic homage to classic old time radio, as well as the acclaimed Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and live from WVL, It's a Wonderful Life. 
He is also his company's resident sound effects goon. And in real life, he works as a location scout on feature films and TV. How you doing, Bill? Good morning, guys. Glad to be here. Right on. And near the end of the alphabet, we have Michael Wilhelm. Michael's acting credits cover a wide range of productions, including stage, film, and audio drama. His writing credits include the Skunk Guy novels for young readers and three stage productions, Turtle Soup, Bentley, and more recently, The Dreadful Journal of Phoebe Weems. What a great name. And The Temp is a personal project of his that combines all of his skills as a writer and actor with his love of radio theater. So we're going to talk for about an hour, and then we're going to open up for Q&A. So please hold on to your questions until we get to that Q&A part, and then put them into the um, chat. Or you know, depending on how things go, we might open it up for actual audio, but um, we'll answer questions then. To begin with, um, let's talk a little bit about initial inspiration. What are, how do you, not sort of like, how do you get your ideas, which is a stupid question, but you start getting a little something. Maybe it was tossed to you by, you know, inspiration of like, wow, I want to really do this project now and I need to figure out how to make it work. Or you think about, I want to do a story about sci-fi and I need to figure that out. And you start chipping away at the metaphoric block of marble to see what shape reveals itself. What are your processes of, I want to do something now, what do I go on beyond that? Um, everybody's process is going to be different. So just Tell us a little bit about your own. And Michael, why don't we start with you, Michael Wilhelm at the bottom? Um, yeah, to me, uh, the initial idea that you get is kind of like the big bang. Um, you know, it happens and then it's like, okay, now what do I do with this? Um, I was at a uh, coffee shop one time and I was reading an article about um, the turtle hunt in Cherubusco that take place back in 1949 and how it got worldwide attention. And, and it was just the craziness. This guy was trying to capture this, this giant turtle. And I'm reading this article and they were trying to make it sound like, you know, another Sasquatch or Loch Ness monster type of creepy thing, but I couldn't help but laugh. I just thought this guy is insane. And that, that was the big bang for me. And then at that point I thought, well, you know, somebody should have made this into a movie. Um, maybe somebody could make it into a book. Well, you, know, so you probably could adapt it for this stage. Somebody should do that. And then it was like, well, maybe I should do that. And so the first big project that I ever had, which was that, I just sat down and started typing conversations with the characters. I just, I just, it was like, I conceived and then I had to deliver almost immediately. I'm a, you know, you, the delivery came out and I'm just, I'm just typing. I sent them off to my, uh, my, my uh, editor and she looked it over. She said, this is great. We should do this. And um, for the temp, it was a little bit different in the sense that um, I'd always wanted to be in a situation comedy. Um, and I thought, well, okay, maybe I can write one, but what would I write it about? And so I carried that around for decades before I finally got the idea of putting it into a radio drama, which it worked out really well. So for me, the big bang, and then it's acting on it as, as quickly as you can. Um, get, getting something down, writing out something, some conversation, character names, something. So you have notes so that you can go back later and, and, and refine it. Sounds a little bit like grabbing the tail of a mouse and then pulling it back out of the hole or something. Like yeah. That. Oh, yes. The rear myself. Yes. Bill, what about you? So uh, I start since I, since I do a live show. Right start back from picking a date where I can get the theater. Um, and then once I have a date that I have to do a show, I start writing. Um, pretty much everything is back ended into crafting it around when and where I'm doing the show. And usually, you know, like uh, the last live show that I wrote before um, 
uh, Hitchhikers, we did a Halloween show. So like I knew it was going to be a Halloween show. So we backed the whole thing in to that. And that, you know, you have you have genres sort of in your head and you sort of write into those. And, and since most of what I do is supposed to be comedy, um, I find that I start with the punchline and work my way back from there and build build the whole script back from where I'm trying to end. Um, you know, for some folks, the ending is really hard. I find that if I can start with where the joke is, got to go, it's a lot easier to get there if I know where the joke has to go. So, um, you know, the last show we did, we did um, an atomic age monster, uh, like a giant kangaroo. And we did a uh, universal monster bash. And I like, I knew where the jokes were going. Um, you sort of immerse yourself in that, whatever the genre is, whether it's, you know, a detective or if it's a, you know, horror or whatever it is, there's a language that those, all those things speak. And we look for, I mean, for me, cause I'm writing, trying to write comedy, we're looking for tropes and easily referenceable things that people get. There's a lot of, there's a lot of aha in what, what we do. So I start from the backwards and work my way back from there. Great. So, so, so both with date and content, I, like I start with a date and when I know I have a date, I back up from there and start writing. And then with content, I start with the, where, where the, wherever the punchline takes me and then back, and then get into the punchline. That's really cool. Especially because uh, in our previous panel that Jack just moderated, we were talking about the importance of endings. So I think that was really cool. And uh, we'll come back to some of the constraints of a time thing, because we're going to be dealing with a uh, resource constraints in a bit. And so I'll, I'll, if I don't come up, Please remind me to talk a little bit about the constraints that you have in your situation. Yeah, Bob, what about you? Yeah, so I, I love both of these answers because I feel like I have been in both of those situations, which really says to me like there's no wrong way to to start this, right? There's no wrong way to sort of jump into the into the pool. But I think for me, when I'm when I'm writing, when I'm creating, um, it's it's usually it has a lot to do with what I'm taking in at that time. And I, you know, I'll watch a documentary and, and like Michael was saying, there's some story in there that feels like, well, that, that's a story. Like that's already kind of a story that's ready to go and someone needs to tell it. Um, you know, if I've been watching a lot of horror movies, that's sort of where my head is. And then you, and you start to notice things about them and you go, well, okay, I like that, but I, you know, I don't like this. Maybe if that went in a different direction and then a whole story can sort of tumble out from there. So I, I'm, you know, I'm personally, I'm kind of, I try to be like an omnivore. I try to take in plays, movies, radio dramas, novels, graphic novels, just kind of whatever, whatever I can. And all that, I think um, you guys were talking about that this morning in the, in the opening session, all that sort of goes into the pot and simmers and stews for a while. Right. And then sometimes a surprising mashup of those things will come out sometimes um, like I say, just a little a tweak on some of those stories that, that you've been hearing. So I think I tend to get inspired by other people's work um, and whether sometimes, like I say, sometimes in a positive way and sometimes because I hear something, I think, wow, that, that should have been so much better. Um, and any of that is, is viable, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, when it comes to doing an original show or adaptation, how many people here have done both? And also, um, is there one you prefer to work in, in primarily to, to another? Or how do you approach adaptation versus an original show when it's near the beginning and you're starting to sort of figure out either how I'm adapting it or how I'm going to move forward in, in that original? Is there a difference in your process? And why don't we start with Bill? So, um, 
the one adaptation I've gotten to work on, I didn't write, but I directed and produced it, was the It's a Wonderful Life show, mm -hmm. uh, which was written by a, a great uh, playwright down in Asheville, North Carolina named uh, Willie Repoli. Um, he runs uh, the Immediate Theater Project in Asheville. And he wrote It's a Wonderful Life as a four-hander. And it's a brilliant retelling of it because it's one of these shows, it's all, all the Christmas shows, we've seen them live, we've seen them in the movies, we've seen them, you know, a, a, a thousand Christmas stage shows with all the children in the neighborhood in them. So you, you get a little tired of it and the It's a Wonderful Life radio show is slow. It's a slog um, as written, like as, as adapted straight from the movie. But what Willie did was he took it and turned it on its head and it's four actors that are trapped at the studio in a snowstorm and they have to do the whole show in two hours. Um, wow. And so it's a, you, you get to adapt what is really familiar, but make it exciting for the audience because they're seeing the panic of uh, a, an actor and a, uh, the, the secretary at the office trying to do sound for the first time. And it's, it's fun that way. So a lot of what we do is, um, a lot of what we try to do as far as adaptation is taking those elements that are already familiar and making, putting them on their head in such a way that the audience, especially for us, because we're a live audience and it's a live show, it's not, so it's, I feel like I'm at a disadvantage to you guys because you guys do recorded stuff. So you have a lot, you have, you have multiple takes. You know, everything we do is, what you see is what we get. We do it, we do it once and there it is. So um, we're playing on that a lot. As far as original material goes, um, you know, like I said, what I what I tend to do is sort of find the things that I know are, are good jokes, even if they're bad, even they're old jokes, um, but they, they play and I'll, I'll reach out and I'll, I'll listen to old Adam Costello and find some good wordplay and then shoehorn those jokes into my story. Um, I wrote an entire uh, noir detective story with lyrics from Prince. <laughs> nice. Um, because, but again, it's, it's one of those, that's a slow burning joke that you don't really catch until about two thirds of the way through the act. Um, and then when you get it, you're waiting for them because you know which ones are coming. So it's, that's right. the sort of stuff that I like to do with, you know, it's most of what I do is sort of a combination of both original and adapting. I'll, I'll take an old Johnny Dollar or a Philip Marlowe and I'll sort of squeeze out the raw materials of it and then contemporize it and make it, a, and we do them straight. We don't do, we're not going for full parody. We're doing what we do as a straight read, but we're doing it very tongue in cheek. So it's a, it's a little, uh, I, I guess our show is as closer to a thrilling adventure than okay. anything else. Right, gotcha. And Michael, what about you? For me, um, I've done very little adaption. The biggest challenge that I found with that was copyright. Um, when you try to adapt something, then all of a sudden it becomes a legal entanglement. It's like, yeah, I don't need that. You know, I'll move that away. However, I have done a, I've done a couple of them under the table. Um, but for me, I think that any kind of an, uh, uh, an adaption um, needs to um, hold the original in, in, in like high esteem. And so many times I've seen adaptions kind of go off on, on a different tangent. And you're going, well, this, this isn't that story at all. Um, I think that the, uh, the adaption, whether it be a film or a radio drama or even a stage play, 
should excite the audience enough to want to go back and read the original. Um, I heard when I was in junior high, um, an adaption of the picture of Dorian Gray on the CBS radio mystery theater. And I just, wow, that was a great story. And I had to go back and read the book. It, would, it just excited me that much. And to me, that's my approach on, on doing a classic or doing that's, an adaption. That's a great approach, especially because there's a number of, uh, film critics especially, that make the distinction between an adaptation and an appropriation. And a lot of time directors do an appropriation of, I want to tell my own story, but I want this umbrella to put it on. So thank you for bringing that up. That's, right. a, that's a really important point. Yeah, Bob, what about you? How about you um, and originals and adaptations? Uh, yeah, both, honestly, Lothar. So when, I, when we were working on Chatterbox, that was mostly adaptations. Um, I was an English major in college. And so a lot of our material um, came from literature um, and in part because of Bill, exactly what you were saying, we put ourselves on a schedule and it was just like, well, we can't sit around and wait for, you know, somebody to show up with a great idea or a great script. We've got to, we've got to produce something. So I was scouring, you know, the internet archives and project Gutenberg and all that kind of stuff, looking for some short stories that were punchy enough, that were fun enough, that would, would translate well. Um, and I mean, I spent 10 years kind of doing that stuff. And, and now with Spoken Signal, I'm really more interested in original work and in writing my own stuff. But for me, anyway, for me, I think that, that that long time in the trenches working on adaptation was so helpful because that meant getting down into stories by the greats. Like we Chatterbox started and ended with, with Edgar Allan Poe with the cask of Amontillado. And you got to get in there and sort of pull that story apart and figure out why is this so great? How does, you know, how is it working internally? And then in some cases, frankly, like what, what parts can you not translate, right? What parts are essential to get the feeling across? There's no substitute for the actual story, obviously. Um, I'm not improving on, on any of this great literature, but you also don't just want to read it, right? We were doing fully dramatized shows. So, you know, what parts of, we did Bartleby the Scrivener way early on, which is a great, hilarious, but also, yeah, right, Michael, I love this story. It's also wow. very dense, it's Melville, right? So how do you take those, how do you take the spirit of that story? How do you um, take the funny parts of that story and bring them to life? Absolutely in a way that will get, I was hoping to get like school kids who have to read this, get them excited about it and laughing at it. Um, so just doing that, that kind of work and that kind of deep analysis and surgery and all that, I think has really informed the way that I approach original work now, right? And I think about original work um, and looking for those different plot points and those different hooks and those different uh, punchlines, as Bill was saying, to, to hang your hat on. So I have enjoyed working in both. And I think I have like Trent, like spent enough time for me for now in adaptations and I'm excited to really dig into more original stuff. And, and Bob, I would I would agree that you know when once you sort of get the hang of adaptation and get the language of it, like it it allows you to teach yourself the language of how to write the way that you need to write for this genre. It, it gives you the it gives you the component parts so you can work out how to write for a, a radio show, how to write it so that things make sense without having to invent it all. And then once you're really adept at adaptation, your own original material just flows out a lot easier because you're already in the vernacular. You're in the, you're in the chunks that are there. 
That's right. Yeah. So for anyone who's who's struggling or, or, you know, nervous about writing, I would say adapt something first, even if it's 10 minutes, even if it's an exercise and you don't intend on producing it. What a great uh, exercise for you. What a great what great experience to, like I say, really dive into a, an existing story that, you know, and you like and figure out why it works. Right. And, and to that to that end, I, I've also suggested for people that are trying to get started, they're stuck. Find a show that you already know the characters and write a, you write, write a scene for them because it doing the heavy lifting of trying to invent a world is sometimes overwhelming as well. So by the same adaptation of, as adaptation, sort of co-opting, you know, a, a Buck Rogers episode or a, a, a Sam Spade episode allows you to sort of get the knack for it. And then, and then you get to create your own characters and you can grow from there. But like if you're struggling, start with somebody else's world because that, that the heavy lifting is over at that point. It reminds me a little bit of uh, when you first learn a musical instrument, you're not going to start writing your own music right away. Right. You're going to learn some songs that someone else has done, figure out what you like to play, what you, how you do best, and then you're going to find your own voice eventually. And that's, just, I think, the same with any art, you know, any art discipline, 100%. any art style. You guys mentioned uh, genre a little bit, and that's something also that I think is an interesting subject especially because our modern conception of genre, where now we have literally hundreds of subgenres of various things and this taxonomical boxes. Originally the term genre when used by Aristotle meant drama, prose, and verse. Those were the three genres. Um, where do you, how do you guys approach genre? Do you find it restrictive? Do you like it to be more open-ended? When you write, do you keep yourself, uh, how, how within the, guidelines of the genre, the dogma of the genre, do you go and what cautions would you give new people coming in saying to allow them to flourish within a genre but not be constrained by it? And Bob, why don't we start with you? Throw you the tough question right away. Seriously, that is a very rich, <laughs> detailed, difficult question. Um, so I think, gosh, I was actually, that's funny, Lothar, I was reading the other day a conversation online about what genre even is, what constitutes genre. <clears throat> when is a story a genre and not genre? What, you know, what is the realm outside of genre? Um, and, and that's, I think that's even a fruitful conversation that we could, we could get into today. But um, A, I love genre. Um, it's, you know, the definition I read there, I don't, I don't say I'm not saying I'm by this, but just as a, as a thumbnail, the definition I was reading was somebody saying genre tends to be more about plot and things like literary fiction and just fiction in general tend to be more about characters. Way oversimplified, right? Way oversimplified, but maybe gives us a little bit of a direction to, to speak around uh, here today. So I love both. Um, I tend, when I'm writing, I tend not to be categorizing it already. Um, I mean, it's sometimes I will sit down and think, okay, this, this is an adventure story and I want it to be an adventure story. Um, this is a sci-fi story, whatever it is. But I, you know, I think in a lot of cases, you know, that's the, that's the problem for other people. Right. And I think about filmmakers, you know, are they really worried about, you know, what Netflix category they're going to be slotted in? Maybe they are, but that seems like a, that seems like Netflix's problem to me. Um, I think the great thing and the tricky thing about genre is that they come with sort of guidelines um, or expectations maybe. Um, so, and, and maybe that's a more fruitful distinction is that, you know, if you're not writing a genre piece, 
then there's really, it's really wide open. There are, you've got to set up the rules. You've got to kind of introduce the listener, the reader, whoever into how this world works. But if you present something that is, is sort of on the face of it, like, well, this is a horror story, then you know there are going to be certain elements that, that show up, or at least you expect that there will be certain elements that show up. And so I think what's great about it is that it does give you those, those guidelines to play in, right? Sometimes having a total wide open world can be paralyzing. This is why poets will will write in a form, right? They'll get formal about it because, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of art to it and history to that too, but that gives you uh, some restrictions to work with, work against, challenge yourself with. Um, and I think genre can do that. I think where it gets tricky is if you simply follow the expectations, right? If you if you simply if you take the the well trod path, the path of least resistance. Um, and it's, you know, Lothar, you made a musical reference. It's kind of the same thing. It's like if you just play this, play through the same chords that everyone's expecting and you go from, you know, the one to the four to the five over and over and over, it gets a little boring. So I think genre is, is genre comes with, if, if, if I'm defining genre as something that comes with expectations, a story that comes with certain expectations, then that's good and it's bad. You can, you can, uh, sort of fall victim to them, or you can, you can use them as inspiration, as a jumping off point, as a way of tricking your audience, as a way of surprising your audience. Um, so yeah, a lot to talk about. Great. Bill, how about you? Uh, how do you like, how do you like to approach when, genre? You're, when you're trying to write, and I, and I keep emphasizing trying to write comedy, um, because it's always, you know, what you think is funny is not always going to resonate with your audience. But when you're trying to write comedy, genre is your best friend because it because you can do any of it and all of it at the same time but the gags are inherently there because of the expectation and you can subvert those or you can stay with them uh, you know and and i understand what bob's saying about you know if you're writing traditional straight pieces it can get you can fall into traps really easily and it sort of becomes very rote and you know you're not you're not being clever if you're just writing the same story over you know Every, you know, Sam Spade story is the same Sam Spade story almost every single time. Um, there's not a lot of variation, but, uh, you know, I think doing that, I think you can still, as a comedy writer, you can sort of subvert those expectations. But for me, knowing the genre, knowing the tropes, knowing the language of it helps me sort of cast where I want my story to go. And um, at least from, from my perspective, like that's, it's been a positive sort of like, all right, I know, and, and my audience isn't, you know, dead on expecting this to be a serious noir. It's not expecting this to be a serious horror. It's expecting to be our take on it so that they, they're not, they're not, they're not disappointed if we don't hit the notes they want, but they're, they're receiving the notes that we hit. And again, com comedy is easy, but comedy is hard. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it makes the writing easier. It's still no easier to get laughs. Right. Cool. Michael, what about you? And what a lovely cat you have over your shoulder. Oh, I didn't the see other it. way. The other way. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted to find out what was going on. Um, exactly. As far as genre goes, um, I never actually thought that much about it when I was writing because I always got, I got a story to tell. 
you know, and I was considered, uh, you know, I, I did categories is what I would consider a comedy, uh, drama, horror. Um, but then within those categories, there are so many other, you know, and so I suppose, you know, genre would definitely uh, fill the bill for that word there. But when I write the story, it's like, I got the story, I got to write. And then we'll categorize it later. We'll, we'll, we'll let marketing take care of that. We'll let marketing show people, this is going to be a comedy. This is going to be a horror show, you know. Uh, but I never really, well, I can't say that because I do, I favor comedy. I just love writing comedy. It's, 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 a, it's a gift that I've really enjoyed. Um, and um, within comedy, you have all those different genres, but I've never actually really sat down and, and broke down um, the, the genre. I never really let that be an element when I sat down to write something. It was, a, I got a story to tell and we'll sort it out later. Great. Lothar, I want to hear your answer to that question. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, um, I take a holistic approach. So I don't really see, I don't like working in taxonomical boxes. I don't like saying I'm doing that. I, I like the expectations. I guess I want to take the best things from it and go, why, do, why am I a fan of it? What do I want to do it? But I never want to just fit within there. So I, if I do fall within it, it's because it's the way that I want the story to go happens to be in conjunction with the genre. And then there's times where I try and turn things on its head sometimes consciously, sometimes not. But again, going back to that Aristotelian definition, I think can be helpful to free things up to where you've got drama, which is right in the present, which is what we deal with in audio drama. You're right thrust in the middle of the action and you're showing everything is there and the audience is being pulled along in time in real space. With prose narrative, you're talking about something that's already happened. You know, Bob Arnold, Bill Arrowood, and Michael Wilhelm was on a panel on this day, and this is what they talked about. That's what prose does, which was a different sort of genre. And then there's verse with poetry, which has its own sort of things that go along with it. Those can mix. So we've got in Greek times, you've got um, prose, or I'm sorry, verse, poetry involved in drama that was done on a stage for someone as a performance. So that, you know, that sort of like, very open-ended vague thing then when you apply to something like oh i want to do a noir or maybe i want to do a noir with a little bit of a cult in it how do i mix those together um a lot of it's feel i guess what what feels right you know what what's making me happy when i'm writing it um and if if i'm entertained by it then that's the first person i need to impress is myself and then maybe i go oh this really is a genre and i want to play around with it so it's kind of exploration as i go if that makes sense <laughs> a vague sort of way. Um, similar to genre is the style of telling a story. So we've got, you know, do you want something to sound like an old time radio show? So you're going to take an OTR approach. Do you want something to be fully cinematic to where it feels like an audio movie? Do you want it to uh, replicate what maybe is a, a stage performance with that kind of, uh, you know, and get that kind of acting out of your actors? Or uh, as Jack described it, a YouTube confessional where it's very first person and one person narrating almost like a, a live dramatic merging of that narrative and the drama at the same time. How do you guys like to work? Uh, how do you make that determination? How many of those different styles have you worked in? And Michael, why don't we start with you this time? Okay. Um, the styles that are available um, with radio drama are infinite. I think you can, you know, westerns, horror. I mean, you you can go any any route you, that you want to go with that. Um, the way that you set it up and the way that you present it, um, I think, also um, adds to the style that you're creating. Um, I know that when I first wrote the uh, the scripts for the temp, 
I had in my mind that this would be something that we would set the actors down on and we would, in a studio, we would record them and so forth and so on. But when I showed them to um, uh, the artistic director of our theater company, she said, no, 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 we'll put this on stage. We'll let the audience laugh and we'll record them and it'll be, it'll be a lot more, it's a lighthearted script, so let's make it a lighthearted thing. And so that particular production came out of, you know, doing that in front of a live audience and getting sort of a more of a sitcom feel to it, whereas being into a studio would be more akin to, you know, a drama where the actors are more intimate with the listener. Um, and so, yeah, that was my experience with, uh, with, with that. And um, I have written some radio scripts for, uh, to be recorded in a studio. And it is rather antiseptic, um, but you can tweak it a lot more um, with, the, with uh, the style and the, and, the, and the techniques that you use. Whereas when you're doing it live before a live audience, it's like, um, that's it. You've, you've said it, it's out there, it's the way it is. And you know uh, you can go in and clean it up a little bit, but really there, there, there's a lightness about it that, um, uh, so anyway, I kind of ran off on a rabbit there, but yeah, that's, uh, th that's my experience with dealing with the, the different styles. That's great. Bob, why don't uh, you go next? Because I have a specific reason that I'm going to have Bill be last for this particular question. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I have worked in a lot of those, those styles um, and I think all have their place. So I'm a, I'm a big proponent of saying like nothing is off the table. We, you, we're already, you know, in, in any art form, you have a, a limited tool belt, right? Just limited by the art form in, in, radio drama there's no visual so you're you're limited in that way so i why limit yourself further right if if your story is a confessional type story then that's what you should do if it's a more of a live audience type story that's what you should do um i think when you're sitting down to to figure out your story that's a big part of it is to you know who who is telling the story how is it being told so we did with chatterbox we were mostly working in the studio but we did a couple of live stage shows, which were a total blast and come out sounding very different, right? It's, it's like Michael was saying, it's kind of a different goal when you're doing something live on stage, you're playing to that audience first and then maybe a recorded audience um, later. We've done, we did live to broadcast shows. Um, remember we, for six years on Halloween, we were doing live horror broadcasts from our studio that were immediately going out over the radio. And then now with Spoken Signal, it's more, it is more, cinematic it's more you know putting things together piece by piece i'm really i've been excited about that detail that level of detail sonic detail vocal detail that we're able to get um and and really sort of arranging things and polishing things up exactly like i want them so it's you know back to the music it's it's are you are you in the studio recording a, an album or are you playing live both have great things about them and both have drawbacks so i think the story has to dictate what those are. Um, and two, Lothar, you know, is this, is this something where we need to really hear a lot of internal thoughts? Okay, well, then maybe that becomes more of a confessional piece. Um, you know, in radio drama, you can have a narrator, right? There's some weird feeling out there in the world that if you have a narrator, your story is bad and you, you need to show and not tell. That's total bunk. That's crazy. Go back and listen to old time radio. They're mostly narrated some of the greats that like one of my favorites quiet please built around a single narrator right and and it's so effective and it's so it doesn't mean that they're 
Um, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff you can get into with them being unreliable or, or outright crazy uh, in the case of Quiet Please. So I think all of those tools should be there and should be part of that stew as you're thinking about, about what to do. Um, and just one last note, I'll tell you when we did the, we were doing these live horror broadcasts for the first year, that was, it was a real discussion about, well, do we have an audience, right? This is going out live over the radio. You know, if it were, if it were comedy, absolutely, I'd want an audience. But what we eventually decided, we thought, you know, it's a horror show is if we were trying to really be spooky and like what reaction, what, what audible reaction do you really want from an audience in that situation? Right. Nothing. You want them to be silent, maybe, you know, a, a gasp every now and then, but really you, you don't want that audience feedback when you're trying to set that very careful tone. So in that case, we said, okay, no audience in some of these other cases where the whole point was here we are on stage with the sound effects and people running around and doing the voices that was very much we wanted the audience feedback. So all of those things, you know, are things that you got to think about when you're when you're sitting down with your story. Great. Bill, uh, the reason I wanted to, you to go last is because you do everything live under is my understanding. Within that, how do you for a live performance, do you sometimes pick different approaches? Uh, like what you mentioned with, uh, um, you know, it's a wonderful life. How did uh, the constraint of the medium then address how you were going to tell that within the constraints of what your venue is. And you're muted. As Bob was talking, it made me think, you know, we laugh in a crowd, but we cry in the dark alone. So, <laughs> you know, depending on what your story is, is really where you're, where you're finding your audience. So, yeah. Great. Okay. Contemporary audio drama is and thrillers, and you don't need, like you said, you don't need a crowd for that. You you actually the intimacy of it enhances it even more, and the and being more cinematic with stuff that is, um, you know, thrilling and horror and that sort of thing really enhances that in a way that it just doesn't do on stage. It's you know, watching six people read in front of you on stage isn't terrifying. It just it. Almost never is. It's it's hard to it's hard to wrap your head around it when you're just watching people read. Whereas listening to it, you do become immersed in that world. So um, I think as far as what we do, I mean, I I write on it for a stage that, that I can only get four people, four, six people in at a time. So we definitely approach things in terms of literally spatial issues. Um, but I'm also writing so that the audience is seeing the gangs, um, you know, I, I, I'm a total cheat. I don't, I don't do what you guys do to try to have to craft things. I have an audience that gets to see things that will make them laugh. I mean, I put the sound table because it's mine. I put it in the front of the stage because seeing live sound effects is a novelty for people and they love it. And it's, it's, you know, my sound table is the character in the show. So I approach it as a character in the show that gets to have lines and interacts with the, with the actors and be is a part of the show. So is my narrator. The narrator, you know, is an active part of the show in a way that, you know, is sort of not in a traditional audio only approach. Um, so, so my whole show is based on the fact that my audience is there. Uh, I, I often lament the fact that our recordings just are not that good. In fact, Jack wanted me to do one of the panels that was about sound recording like that. I should not do that um, because I'm, I'm I, because it's just, 
it's not what our show does at all. It's we are we are we're doing we're we're trying to perpetuate what the uh, the genre is to have people that are get a taste of it live that want to go and find more of it to listen to. That's that's our that's part of our our mission is to sort of make this live event something that people want to want more of all around. And we sort of came into the perfect storm of, of starting a live show just as audio uh, drama sort of really were making the, the big push back. Like the, I guess for about 10 years, people have been making them, but in the last five or six is when suddenly it's a, it's a boom everywhere that, you know, that, that it, once, once the podcast world really took, took branch in about 2013, 2014, that's when audio drama is just, this is growing and growing and growing. And we, we, we sort of capitalize on that as much as possible. But as far yes. as approach, yeah, I 100% write to see my audience and see them get the get, and see what we're doing. There's is a is a good bit for them because it's you know whereas you, if, if you're having the same actor do three voices behind the mic, it's it's charming, which you'd never know. But having the same actor do three voices in one scene in a show is amazing, and the audience is stunned by the act. And I think I think it. For me, it lets my actors show off. And I like that. Great. I know Michael likes that, that part. <laughs> that is a perfect segue into the next one, which is about limitations of resources and how that affects the way that you craft your project. So you've just talked a little bit about uh, the constraints of being on stage, which is also another one. I think one of the big, I don't want to say mistakes, but things that people don't realize when they first start writing for audio drama is... I want 30 characters. I want 50 characters. And then you start realizing I need that many actors or at least actors that can play that many. And that's how many lines I'm going to wrangle. And what did I just get myself into? What other constraints of the medium of your own resources, whether it be actors, time, uh, how many sound effects you have or can buy your own personal skill set? Um, how does that consciously affect the way that you design a project? And Bill, let's continue with you. You just talked a little bit about stage. Is there anything else in this area that um, applies to you that you'd like to speak about? And you're on mute. I mean, for me, it's, it's you know, I start, I usually start with the actors I have. Um, and I, uh, I've often have found that I've been very fortunate to sort of find good local actors that think my jokes are funny. And I write backwards from what I know they can do. Um, I had one actor who was just superb that I could give him anything. He could do six roles in one show and he was great. Um, and that's, that, was my, that was my only restraint is knowing what my actors could do and trusting them. And I learned, it, I, I think the hard thing is when you have a cast that you work with all the time, the hardest part was finding parts for people that you didn't have parts for. So I would stick in a couple extra lines just to make sure that I would have actors that were satisfied that they were involved. That, that's sometimes I would overwrite the like, all right, well, you know, this person hasn't said anything in a while. I better otherwise, you know, it, you, you find that they're just standing on stage. So you want to make sure they're doing something. So again, for me, it's different than doing a recorded show where you can sort of craft it in pieces and you can work those parts together. But, but you know, financially and budget wise, uh, we've had a, we have a nice arrangement. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with, with adding what I need and taking away, but, but, you know, a stage show is a whole different production value cost than anything else. Um, we could do a whole seminar on how not to use brown paper tickets. So, we can, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. 
but anyway, so yeah, but I, for, for me, you know, the constraint of making sure my actors are all engaged, but getting to write backwards from where I know the talent lies. Like I have two actors that can sing, so I could write those parts backwards for them to know that I wanted to put that as a part of my show. And that's, that's, that's not a restraint for me, that's a boon. That's, that's a great one. And that's, that's a really good point. Cause I think all of us have experienced where there's actors that we really like working with and they have such a strong presence and voice of their self that it's almost like, yeah, I want, I want Tanya to be in this, in this episode and I can, she helps me, she helps me write it because she's in my head. And that's the same with every actor, you know, and that's, that's really great when you have that sort of relationship. Bob, what, what about you with um, regarding restraints and also working with your actors? Let's expand the question up to that as well and how that helps with the writing process or the creation process? Yeah, uh, well, certainly scheduling is always a challenge, right? And for for me and for I think a lot of folks who work in, in this, we're mostly volunteers or working with mostly volunteers and volunteers sometimes have a cousin come into town that they didn't expect and can't come that night or volunteers sometimes get sick. Um, one of my One of my kind of uh, favorite horror stories from when we were doing chatterboxes we had a two-hander show we had a guy uh it's a, a guy having a, a dialogue with the devil and the night we were going to record the devil lost his voice so, <laughs> so thankfully this was not a live performance um and we were able to reschedule and just go out and you know drink a bunch of margaritas and feel sorry for ourselves but that kind of stuff happens um Certainly, you know, if you like you said, Lothar, if you start writing a bunch of parts, then you start either you need to either start thinking, can one person do multiple roles here? Can we, you know, some of these incidental cameo type roles? Can we just let the other actors do these? Or do I really want to have to schedule an additional actor to come in for 10 minutes to just do this one part? Um, and when we did this, the first production I did under Spoken Signal audio drama is called The Waverly House Haunting. And this is one we did in the studio with, you know, it was a cast of, a, I was hope I was, when I sat down to write, I thought it would be a small cast. It turned out to be kind of a medium cast, um, but ended up doing it in a way more like a film where we took the, we, we had some read throughs and did the whole thing straight through, but then chopped it up into pieces and rearranged them so that the actor who needs to be in part one, three and four didn't have to come for 10 minutes each night, but instead could knock out all their, their parts. Um, I mean, that's, you try to do that stuff to keep people happy. But I, I guess the other thing I would say as a writer, I tend to try to wall that off. I tend to kind of say, well, that's director Bob's problem, right? If I want to write a scene that, that has a car chase or an explosion or whatever, or 10 characters or whatever crazy thing uh, comes to mind, you know, you're aware of those, you're, you're kind of aware, well, this might be an issue. Um, you know, I think you're aware that if you have too many voices, it can just get confusing, right, in, in audio drama. But for the most part, I try to not limit my writing by what I know the production challenges will be, because that's, that's a problem for a few months from now, and you've got time to figure that kind of stuff out. And I'd rather, I think I'd rather start big and then, and then pull myself back down to earth if necessary. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of my yeah. uh, best writing teachers uh, used to say, let the wild person out. Well, you know? I mean, well for the writing, uh, yes, but also getting your actors to show up. Yes. Booze helps. Yeah. Booze helps. <laughs> Booze helps. It, it, let's put it this After way. You record. <laughs> it, it never hurts. 
<laughs> what about you, Michael? Well, first of all, I think uh, the devil losing his voice is a great title. Uh, <laughs> the devil lost his voice. You got to write a story for that. That's just that's that's phenomenal. I would love you. Um, you can write it too, Mike. Please claim it. Love it. <laughs> um, I've been very blessed in the sense that I have access to a, a local on-stage theater company that I can just draw from. Um, so that makes it a lot easier. Um, when I first wrote the three scripts, I had a lot of characters in there, but I knew that I had a lot of characters or a lot of actors that could play multiple parts. The only thing I didn't have, and I didn't think this out really thoroughly, was children. The second episode of the script uh, has a group of kids and um, they're a whole nother, you know, what was it? W.C. Fields said, never share the stage with kids or animals because yep. they'll, you know, they'll stay. Um, it's very difficult. I had actually had somebody come in and, and actually separately direct the kids. Um, they were, they, they came off great, but it was a challenge. And um, I haven't repeated that. <laughs> um, I try to keep my scripts to a minimum amount of, of characters, mainly because of the genre. We use that word again. Um, comedy, situation comedies have a limited characters. Um, we have a limited time uh, to, to put it all in. So if you have like big mobs of stuff, it makes it difficult. We did do a couple of scripts with, with, with a cast of thousands, which was actually uh, crowd noises for the most part, people arguing and just, you know, real chaos, which we were able to actually draw the audience into as part of the participation of the thing. So that worked out really well. But at first, I didn't think about that when I wrote the script. And then as we got up there, I got, oh man, this is really chaotic. Everybody loved doing it. They, they had a great time, but I was so paranoid that I, I put too much um, on them to have to, have to have to pull that off. One of the other challenges that we faced doing the live production was that somebody got the idea, we should video this. Radio doesn't video well. <laughs> um, we videoed it about three or four times and, you know, we would stage it so that it would look good on camera and everything like that. Fortunately, the finished audio production are great, but it's really not that exciting to watch on television. You know, radio is radio, you know, and it's fun to be there and see it happening live. But when you put a screen between what you're doing and what the audience is watching, it just kind of, you know, fizzles out. So, um, basically trying to stage the whole thing has been the biggest challenge. Um, as a writer, I try to think of, okay, how many actors am I going to use? Uh, the Foley, the live Foley, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And thank God for cleaning up after we, uh, after we get the, the raw material recorded. So, um, yeah, those are the, uh, those are the challenges that we faced. Great. It seems like just by the by the luck of the draw, the three of us tend to do more. We're in person, either in the studio or on stage. But, I, you know, remote recording, that's a whole other technical, massive technical challenge that yeah. I've gotten more interested in over during COVID. But I'm, it still terrifies me. Yeah, it's it's not that bad. It's just different. And it's actually very freeing. That's the way I primarily work. Satellite recording is uh, for people out there in the in the audience. Satellite recording is when we all record our lines individually, multiple takes, send them into the producer. The producer then takes them and goes, that take from person A works well with take, you know, from person B, I'm gonna weave this together. And while at first it seems like that's a really daunting experience and kind of hard, it's actually really, it has some cool aspects to it. From an acting point of view, if you're the type of person to where you can really close yourself off to 
the world and imagine it. You can get into the character and you can just like let yourself go in front of the microphone. You can get some wonderful takes, especially being able to do the same line five times. And that fourth one, that's the one. And that's, I'm going to cut some other ones out and I'm going to send those three to five best takes into the producer. When you get them as the producer and listen to it all, it can be really fascinating of like, wow, Bob delivered that line so interestingly and Bill, and now the scene feels different and it's really great to put it together. But um, once you get familiar with it, uh, you'll like it for its own things. It's kind of, it's not one is better than the other, but you'll probably find what you're comfortable with. And also maybe sometimes I want French food. So maybe some other times I want Thai food. Um, today on this project, I want to work satellite. Another one, I want to be back on stage again. It can just be a lot of fun. I would, I would think that um, comedy done that way would be very difficult. Can be. Um, I, w- I was in a film one time where they kind of did that, you know, and comedy is timing. It's playing off of each other. It's that the chemistry. I'm not saying you can't do it. My gosh, most of the motion pictures that we watch, the animated films are done that way. And they're comedies and, and they work out great. But I would think that would be a, a Herculean task. It's challenging. You need the right type of actors to where they can really envision and, and feel that timing. And as a producer, timing comes down to you. You're having all these individual clips. You have to have a really good ear. You have to be a director in that sense of like a film director that has a style like a Kubrick or a Scorsese or a Tarantino to where we don't think about how they direct actors. We think about how they structure their scenes and how they have the music come in at the right place. That's the type of mentality and ear you have to have to be a producer with a satellite recording. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's, I mean, yeah. but it, that, 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 that's the level, and you know, we talked about your resources. That's the level of technical expertise where you, you know, as, as, as our sort of writer director sort of mentality is like, where, you know, that, that's the next step where you actually want someone with real technical expertise that you can trust to be to do that. Cause that trying to learn that on top of producing a show is a, is a lot, um, you know, yeah. That's, um, Really good, and this will lead into the next question, or the next yeah question for you guys, which is, I will say for uh, anybody out there, the best advice that I would give is do what you like in it. If you try doing the end post-production and you absolutely hate it, take as much of a minimalist approach, maybe just do it on stage, do something where you're not worrying about that, because if you're not having fun, your audience isn't gonna have fun. If you're someone like me to where I can spend an hour on five seconds of audio to get all the little things right and I had a good time, that's great. I'm having a good time. But if I hated that, I wouldn't wanna do that production that way. So to me, I guess that's the, the best advice I could give to people is start off doing what you love and expand from there. See if you can expand what that is and get comfortable with stuff. Try things out and see if you like it or not. But don't throw yourself into the deep end of the pool and go, I got to do it all this way or else it's no good. If you're not having fun, there's no money in this. You better be having fun or why do it? So I guess my next uh, question to you guys is about that. Of What advice do you wish maybe was given to you when you started out? Or what would you think would be an important advice to give to someone now? And um, Bob, why don't we start with you? Yeah, great question. Um, Offhand, I would say that your first show will never be your best show to just do it and get it done, right? And I mean, you can, and, and I would, I would sit and tinker and tinker and tinker and lament and wish this sounded better or we had made this choice. You can just go over and over and over this stuff. Um, I think it's important to do something and finish it and put it out and then learn from it and get better. And I, I make myself feel better 
when I go back and I'll watch a, you know, I'll watch a TV show or something. And like the early episodes of Seinfeld are not the best episodes of Seinfeld, right? They're, they're okay. Um, but it, they ramp up, they get better. And so that happens to everyone when you're, when you're working in a genre, um, you know, when you're, when you're uh, learning. And I think the important thing is not to get so hung up on it that you're paralyzed and that you can't move forward because you have to make some less good audio, maybe even some bad audio before you can even start to know what good audio is. Great. Bill, what about you? What advice would you give? Uh, hire a better sound man from the start. <laughs> um, find somebody that, and, and, and budget accordingly for it. Like, um, you know, I, I've sort of always known that things cost what they cost, but like, I, I lament the fact that my early stuff and even my current stuff is just doesn't sound great. And I wish I could have been able to invest in that level of understanding. You know, we were doing stage shows. So we didn't really care, but from a, from a posterity standpoint, you know, I really wish I could have had a better sense of doing what you guys do um, from a, a recording standpoint and having a better, better sense of how that works. Um, but Bob's absolutely right. Uh, just do a show. doesn't matter. It's going to be terrible. Um, you know, the, the, the exception of that rule, Bob, is the Simpsons. The Simpsons were much better earlier on than, the, than later on. You know, it's, <laughs> True. It's, it's, you know, uh, I, I still contend that, uh, so, the, so the first, ep the very first episode of the Simpsons is the one where they get sent as a little helper. And it's essentially an incredible, it's, it's one of the best Christmas shows you'll ever see as far as the genre of like holiday shows. It's the first episode of the Simpsons. It's, it's amazing. And the whole world, the whole world building is there in one episode. And I just, I'm, I, I tell, I, when I talk to kids that I teach and people that I talk, talk to about writing, I said, look at the world building they do in 22 minutes. If you can build a world that good in 22 minutes that just, and, I, and don't get me wrong, they've got 30 years of us knowing everybody on it, so it helps. But still, it's, it's so concise and it's so rich in such a short time. That's, that's sort of where I start when I'm, trying to, when I'm trying to figure out how to condense my stories. I look at those stories and say, look how much they do in such a short time. I can, I can certainly do that in the amount of time. Um, one thing that you guys, I meant to mention before is that when you're talking about being able to record remotely and do recording, I know that as a director, I have actors that, I, that we will do it in rehearsal five times and he'll do it live a different way and it galls me um, because he, and, and there's no going back for me. Like there's no fixing that. It's like, ah, you didn't, why are you so fidgety? Ah, you weren't like this during rehearsal. And so like that, that kills me. Um, so like, I, I'm envious of you guys for being able to have to say, no, I need you to do that one more time. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, like Bob said, do the show, but um, where you can, get the help that you need so that you're not trying to solve all the problems right away. Go and get a partner or two or find somebody who's clever at the thing that you're not clever at so you can do the thing that you're clever at and then let the other technical parts, let somebody else have fun. Find those people that want it because there's, there's enough nerds out there that people want to have fun with you. Yep, yep. Look at, look then, at the, uh, this convention. Cool. Michael, what about you? What advice um, would you I wish would, that was given to you? Well, actually, um, give yourself permission to fail. It's okay. Um, you'll learn a lot more sometimes when you fail, when you drop the ball, um, than you do sometimes when you're successful. 
But I found that, um, and I would advise anybody to do this who is a, a script writer, whether it's a, a stage play, a screenplay, or a radio play, is get a group of actors together and let them tear it apart. Um, actors want to do the best that they can do. If you have competent actors, that is. Um, they want to do the best. They want to flush out the characters. And when they start going through the script, they'll read it. They'll, they'll give you feedback. And that'll be invaluable to you going back and rewriting the script. Find people that are skilled in that area or that you are familiar with, with, the, um, with, with theater um, to do that. I wouldn't necessarily recommend taking it to your family because, you know, you're going to get, oh, that was really nice, sweetie. Yeah, that's really, that's not going to help you. You've got to have criticism. You've got to have people that say, well, if he did this on this page, then why is he doing this on page seven? This doesn't make any sense. You know, it helps you to think. It helps you to sort out the character and build that up. So that would be my advice is just get a, get a nice group of people. Don't do this alone. The writing you can do alone, but the rewriting you need help. Fair enough. One last question, and then we will open it up to um, questions to the attendees. Um, Bill, you were mentioning the, the Simpsons, and I think that's a, a great thing also when we're learning how to work in this con constraints of like maybe episodic, or it has to be within two hours, or it's within this medium or on the stage or whatever. What is, in everybody's opinion, some of the best stuff that a new person should look at to deconstruct to say, look at the way they did it. Like, for example, Gunsmoke is a great one for me. I love that old time radio show. It is such a masterclass on how to write episodically a done in one that also continues on characters. There is so much brilliant about the way that was constructed. That would be one of my you know, suggestions for people to listen to that and really pay attention to what they do. What about all of you? And, and Bill, you already said uh, The Simpsons, so I'll give you some moments to think about another, another one to add in there. Uh, Michael, what about you? What are some of the things that you would think would just be brilliant for people to look at as a lesson? Um, the Dick Van Dyke Show. Uh, the dialogue in that really bounces back and forth. They, they just really, uh, not all scripts. I mean, when you're doing any kind of a series, you're going to have, you know, good episodes and, and lesser good episodes. But with that particular one, there's a lot of dialogue that just bounces back and forth. Um, when I was in high school, I carried around a copy of uh, Neil Simon's The Odd Couple because he just he just danced with that dialogue, that boom, 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 bouncing back and forth. So those would be my recommendations. Great. Bob, how about you? Wow. Um, I guess it depends on what you're going for. Of course. Um, but yeah, of course, right? It goes without saying. But I think um, I, I gravitate towards stuff that has really vivid characters in it. And so I think about, you know, some of my favorite right. books are, are Dracula, uh, Maltese Falcon, To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think, okay, what's the, what's the through line here? They all have great stories, but they all have very memorable and vivid characters who you like or want to hear more about or are intrigued by. So I think anything like that is good. I think, I do think a steady diet of old time radio is really good for folks who do this. It can, some of it is dated. Absolutely. Sometimes you can listen, you know, to three episodes and get the gist of it. But I think especially when it was things like the Mercury theater on the air, or when it's things like um, Arch Obler and, and uh, uh, lights out, like they, some of that stuff is still upsetting. It's still freaky. It's still fascinating. Um, and to see how they do that within those constraints, I think is really helpful. And I'll say one more thing, uh, Lothar, which is more, maybe more of an acting thing, but also a writing thing, which is I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of these contemporary sit, not even sitcoms, but like one camp, single camera comedies, your Arrested Developments, 30 Rocks, um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Parks and Recreation, 
And when I watch those, I'm always floored by how those actors can take a line that I can imagine on the page and they can give it an extra layer, an extra bit of life that really hits you from a different angle. It's a different tone. It's a different something else. Um, so I think the, some of that really subtle comedy, um, I love, you know, yes, the Dick Van Dyke show. I love that kind of stuff. Oscar Wilde, absolutely. And then from a more contemporary perspective, that really subtle, like this comedy that you can get from just a little different inflection in your voice is really inspiring to me as an audio dramatist. Great. Bill, what about you? In, in addition to The Simpsons, what would you recommend people? I mean, I, I think I think Bob really nailed it that, you know, if you're good jokes are good jokes and good jokes that you need for audio are not the Stooges. You know, you, you don't you don't watch the three Stooges to learn how to write audio drama. You can watch them if you want to. And I do. Um, but, um, you know, you like I said, whatever you're trying to write and learn that vernacular. So immerse yourself in a dozen episodes. Oh, you know, again, if you want to write noir, read and watch noir because it will teach you how to do that. Um, but any one particular writer, I mean, listen, I, I love 30 Rock. I think that uh, she's real smart, but you can't do an eye roll in audio, you know. But, but, but again, what those shows did, and I think, uniquely especially those single cameras is they're all character driven so that you know who those people are so they can do things because you know because you know who they are in a way that a regular sitcom doesn't necessarily do a lot of sitcoms are a lot broader that you know the the, the jokes are broader that it's the uh it's the david letterman versus jay leno dilemma you know dave could do jokes that only dave could do but leno was writing jokes that anybody could write that anybody sitting in that chair could do the same joke so figure out if that's how you're writing. You know, if you're writing that this is broad, that's great. And it's good to do that. But it's so much richer, as Bob says, when you know who your character is and they're a richer person that only they're able to do that. You know, yeah. Jack Donahue is Jack Donahue. And like there's, you know, and only Alec Baldwin's going to do that. And it's, 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 and you can get away with stuff. You're like, that's just, that's my guy. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree. I think some of the stuff that's out there now um, but find this, find what you like and, and, and immerse yourself in that, I think, more than anything. Great. My mother always used to say, you are what your mind feeds on. Yeah. So feed your mind. Yeah, absolutely. So let's open this up to questions. If uh, attendees have any questions, please put it into either the Q&A or uh, to the chat. We have uh, one that's been sitting here in Q&A for a while from David Blue. Is there not a is there not a difference between adaptation and appropriation and reimagination? For example, the entire MCU is sure a reimagine. Let's open that up to um, everybody to talk about. I think that um, one thing is just being clear in your definitions of what these vague terms mean. But um, Bob, what do you have to think about that in regards to appropriation, adaptation, reimagining? Yeah, I like that distinction, uh, David. And and frankly, I mean, I, I don't think any of them are bad. I think maybe appropriation has some negative connotations, but why? Um, I, have a, I have a good friend who did a stage show just a year or two ago where he adapted Frankenstein as a one-man show. With a, it was him and a musician. And he did the entire story and, and not only told the story, but also then stepped back and created this, the, his act, the actor who was telling the story had his own story that involved the musician. 
And it sort of echoed Mary Shelley's story. And it was this beautiful piece of work that he did in maybe two hours, the whole novel. And so was he telling Frankenstein? No, was it an adaptation? No, it was totally a reimagination. And if you're dealing with public domain stuff, go nuts. I mean, I love that kind of stuff where you, you know, you can take something great, you can give it your own spin, you can, you can think about it in a different way. Honestly, you can take something terrible. I mean, don't we all wonder why they don't, why don't they remake bad movies and make them good, right? So you can, you know, if you're looking at something that's 200 years old and it feels dated, but there's some kernel in there that you like and you want to reimagine that, I think uh, what a, what a fantastic thing to do and to bring into the world. So yes, adaptation, straight adaptation, you know, if you want to appropriate something and turn it completely into your own, um, or if you just want to sort of, I guess maybe that would be in between that reimagining um, or, you know, refreshing, bringing it to the modern age, something like that. I think all of those are absolutely viable. Well, what about you? I would just steer away from Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> Very good legal point. C- CBS is, is real litigious. Yeah. Um, but I mean, other than that, I mean, I think, you know, Solomon said, you know, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. So it's, it's okay if you have a good take on something that is already out there. I don't think that, I don't think, you know, I, and again, you know, you can get into the legality of it once you have to sell it, but as far as writing it and staging it, I, I, I like those things. I mean, and, and that's often my approach. I'm a, I'm a little from column A, a little from column B kind of a writer. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm going to sort of pick and choose the pieces that I want, you know, and steal, you know, I mean, if you're writing comedy, you're always stealing jokes. The entire, it's the entire premise to the profession is that you're going to steal somebody else's joke, whether you give credit for it, how you use it or how you adapt it. That's, you know, that, 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 that's, you're being creative, but, you know, do what you have to do to make a good story. And if you've got a good take on, you know, if you can, if you can rewrite Frankenstein in a way that your audience is spellbound, then it's still, a, it's still a good story. It, you happen to be starting with good resource materials, but what you do with it is your own. There, there's a, there's an actor here in Philadelphia that uh, does a one man apocalypse now. It's amazing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, he also he also does a one man nutcracker nutcracker suite, so it's it's, it's a he's a little he's a little bit of a one man show, but um, but I mean like what Bob was saying is like if you can find that source material and you can craft it uniquely, I don't I think that's great. I'm I'm all for it because you know the the one thing that I can say is that um, you know we'll talk about this I'm sure at other times when you're finding your audience, but all of our all of our audiences are nerds. Um, everybody's a nerd for something, but like people that are listening to audio are, you know, they're, they're unique people. So like knowing who that is and knowing that you can tap them is great. You know, and I think, I think that's a, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's knowing that, you know, your audience is smart and listeners and into certain things, you know, and so finding that part of that is, you know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of guys are audio nerds. They're really into, you know, Lothar, you're really into sound. Like you could, like you said, you could spend five hours on five seconds and like, and I think that's awesome. But like that's, as writers and producers, knowing that that's who's listening or looking for our work is a huge, it's a relief to know that the people that 
our listening want to find stuff like what we do. Yeah. They're in, they're into it. And that helps. It's not, it's not like the olden days of radio where you had to do it because everybody was listening. People that are listening now are, are, are seeking you out. And that's amazing. Great. Michael, how about you? And then we're going to move on to some other questions. we got some great questions coming in. Okay. Um, I would say that um, the biggest thing that you're going to deal with is the um, fans of whatever it is that you're adapting. And I was talking to my daughter about this the other day, and I thought, you know, when they did this movie based on this TV show, they really changed this around. They shouldn't have called it an adaption. They should have called it something else. She said they should have called it a reimagining because this way, you know, you're not going to be going and seeing the original that's coming on. I said, well, what about reboot? She said, well, that's just assuming that you're, that you're doing the story all over again and that it's going to be close to the other one. And I thought, you know, that really is helpful to have those labels so that those people that are very protective of their characters that they've fallen in love with, and if you veer from, they just get hostile. At least they know going in, it's kind of like a, 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 a disclaimer at the beginning of this is at a reimagined, you know, then they can go in and knowing that this isn't, you know, Darren McGavin's Kolchak, this is, you know, somebody else's, you know, and then they don't have to, at least they'll know. They'll, they'll be hostile, but at least they'll know. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dave, I think Dave Alt was talking about his Doctor Who shows and like, that's, that's a hardcore <laughs> audience who, who are, who are going to find you. And if you don't do it right, they'll let you know. <laughs> we have another uh, question from Jack Ward. Uh, to the panel, Bob and Bill talked somewhat about this, but I've been considering live shows. Is it a requirement to do comedy on stage? Does it just seem to be something the audience appreciates more for a live radio show than other genres? Mike? I'll, I'll open it up to whoever wants to speak. Well, I, I know that we do the temp live before a live audience and um, they really have a great time and it's really a lot of fun and they're short enough that the people can get up and go to the bathroom or whatever they have to do between episodes we do about three to two episodes at, at, a, at, a, um, at a time and they love it they really thought it was great we kind of did ourselves in when we did the christmas episode because when we were doing the live show um we had in the script just tons of christmas references um, throughout the script and we had a contest for the audience to um, you know the ones that could identify the most would win this Christmas stocking full of all sorts of good stuff well we did the play and nobody laughed and it was like what happened and they were all busy trying to write down what their answers were they weren't listening to the show and we really missed that so yeah having a live audience especially with comedy is very powerful cool well, Jack I would I would jump in and say We've done we've done a couple of live shows, but the two that come to mind immediately neither were comedy. Um, we did an adaptation with Chatterbox. We did an adaptation of Jason and the Argonauts as an audio show live on stage, and it was it was lighthearted and it was fun. But it was fun because like we had musicians going, we had you know the waves crashing, we had the boat rowing. Um, when the harpies came down, we had everybody hold up a. We had the sound effects people hold up a chalkboard and screech and then pull their nails on the chalkboard, which was more the, for the visual than anything. So it was it was fun, but it was not overtly comedic. And I think so. I think, you know, whereas I might, you know, it might be hard to do a thriller live on stage. I think you could do it. And I think anything is fair game. So you've got Spurvac and the entire genre of guys that. They said it's correct that they do just recreations and they do them straight. 
And there's a lot of, there, and, and so there, there's an audience for people who want a straight radio show that doesn't have to be comedy. Um, it is not, it can, it can be slow. I would say that if you're going to do a live show that is not comedy, then you have to craft an entire evening of entertainment. It's not just showing up. And, and I think this is a broader picture of how to present yourself when you're doing your shows, is that if you're doing it live, it's not just six actors staring on stage reading from a book. You've got to give them more to do. I mean, you know, I mean, our shows are a little song, a little dance, a little seltzer in your pants. Um, you, know, you, you know, so like it's, it's uh, act one, song, act two, song, break, song, act two, big finale with a song. So like that's five sketches in a 90 minute period, but it's, it's broken up in such a way that I can do one dead straight and not try to be funny. But like Bob says, the, the atmosphere of being there should be fun. You know, even if you're doing the Lone Ranger, which is a straight show, it's fun to watch. And I think that's how you adapt it. But yes, uh, thrillers and horror, harder. I, I, you know, I don't, but I've seen Lights Out done live uh, really effectively. I've seen uh, some of the other Arch Obler stuff done live and it's, it's great, but again, I knew exactly what I was going to see when I went in there, and I knew that these folks were doing it straight, um, and they were, and they're doing straight homage to old time radio, and so you go for that, and that's that's a different approach. Well, Bill, that takes me back to what you said earlier about having your sound effects table as a character front and center, right? If you're there in person, that's going to be the centerpiece almost always. Yeah. No, it's it's my show. I'm in the front. I, I I can also direct from the front better than I can behind them. Like I can. As, as, a, as a live director directing a live show, they can see me so I can cue them what they need to be doing from in front. Whereas if I was backstage or if I was behind them where most soundboards are, they can't see me a bit. So because of, because of my unique situation of playing all those parts, uh, it's better for me to see them and them to see me. It's almost more like you're a conductor at that point. It's, it's, it's not unlike that. We have a comment and a question from Scott Shell. Good to see you, Scott. Um, I really like the comments of on adaptation earlier as a musician when I want to write some new music and I don't know where to begin. I simply start playing riffs from some of my favorite artists. More often than not, it eventually turns into something original. It's always about finding a source of inspiration and working from there. So I think he's giving another example of what we were talking about. And then a question, what is the longest period of time you all went through a dry spell? And what did you do to rekindle your imagination and inspiration? I guess what I'm trying to say is what kind of approaches do you take or even recognize the Big Bang Theory so that you can move forward with artistry? Do you have any approaches to rediscovering inspiration? Wow. Um, I, I hate to say this, but I've never really had a dry spell only because my writing has always been like secondary to my life. And so I can never really get to the writing when I need to get it. When I finally get to my writing, I've got all this stuff built up that I need to sit down and I, I sometimes get overloaded. Um, but then there's like long times when I'm just distracted with life and I don't write. So yeah, I, I, I've never sat down at a typewriter and not known what to write, except at school when something was required for me to write. And then it was, then it was a little tough. But if it was for something from my big bang, um, I generally had to wait a long time before I could actually sit down and, and, and type it out. So, thank you, Bill or Bob. How about you? I have a lot of downtime between 
it, it, it comes to me in light in, in 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 my sleep or in the lightning, but it doesn't happen often. Um, what I will do to make sure that it doesn't go away is that, and I've done this several times, is that we will stage somebody else's show that somebody else has written, so that I am doing the things, even if I can't write. You know, we did we did Hitchhiker's Guide last year, not my show, and don't tell Disney because I think they own the rights to that now. Um, I, I did some asking around people were like, um, but like the year before that we did the breakfast club when I was in a lull and I couldn't think of something. I, my brain wasn't letting me write. So I had my actors and we got together and we produced the breakfast club as a live stage show. Um, really works. It's just five people in a room talking. Yeah. You know, when it, it's, you start looking at things that you can, for me, I start looking at things that I can do without having to write so that, in the in-between times, I'm still doing the creative aspects of putting the show together. That's that's how I fill the gap between when something hits me in the middle of the night. Nice. What about you, Bob? Yeah, I love that. I love going back to things that you know and like, getting inspiration. Um, I think something else that works for me is just have too many, have way too many projects in your mind at one time, right? So if you get stuck here, well, okay, I can jump to this one. So if I've got two or three, four or five scripts in my mind, there's always something that you can at least make some progress on, I think, and that may help the, the dam break later on. Um, and the other thing that I'm, I all still struggle with, but I, I know this works, is to just write anyway. Just sit down and do it. And okay, if it's bad, so it's bad. You can always revise, right? I think sometimes, um, you know, I do this in my, in my professional life too. Sometimes if, if I can't get the information I need and I'm writing a, a grant proposal, sometimes I'll just put something on paper and put it in front of somebody and let them freak out about it. And then they'll tell me what they do want, right? Because it's all wrong. And sometimes you can do that as a writer for yourself. Well, I'm just going to write this scene and I'm going to put it away for two days. And then when I come back and read it, I'm going to go, oh, that's all wrong. And now I see why. And I can push past it. But I think there's something about, I mean, it, it, you can't, you can't just wait for inspiration all the time, right? That's not, that's never gonna, you'll just be on a really slow schedule. So I think it's that habit, it's, it's almost like exercise. You know, you just, the more you do it, uh, the better you get at it, the more flow you can kind of develop. So I think finding all those different ways to just make yourself do it is the most helpful thing. Yeah, something um, that I'll, I'll throw in there just from our perspective, when you're working in a satellite world, and you're doing the, and let's say your own projects, so you're writing, you're producing, you might even have an acting role in it. Um, if I'm in the mode for writing, I write. And then let's say, oh, I'm running out of inspiration, but I'm feeling creative about uh, the way I wanna direct the show stylistically. So I might make some notes or play around with some experiments in, in my audio setup to, to you know, start getting the thing there. Or maybe I got no creativity whatsoever, but I wanna work on something Well, I'm gonna do line cleaning. I'm just doing that technical thing of doing noise removal, doing the levels, all that stuff that's not creative, but absolutely necessary. And maybe listening to those lines and doing take selection makes me think of some other dialogue. And then I get back into writing mode again, or I'm completely burned out on everything. And I'm just gonna do some acting in some other people's shows and acting and getting you know enthusiastic about their show might refill my tank as well. So that's the benefit to doing everything with all the downside to doing everything as well. Um, when you're chief cook and bottle washer, we have, one uh, more question, which will probably be a good uh, good way to end, because we only about 10 more minutes. We'll see how, how long it takes. This is from Robert Floor. Um, we were talking a little bit about appropriation in the sense of just stealing somebody's work and making it our own and maybe mangling it. But 
with his question is, with the growth of ethnic populations, how do you see addressing issues of appropriation or incorporation of stories or characters in stories? Um, I know there's, that's a lot of a, a fraught area, and especially when we in the audio drama world maybe have less resources of actors that, are, that we know from there. How do we all deal with that? Um, where, where is your comfort level? Where do you, what lines don't you cross? Uh, what do you feel like you need to address? And um, Bob, yeah. why don't we start with you? I'd love to. I'd love to answer that because I did. I did use the term appropriation and sort of say yes, run with it. And Robert, that is such a great clarification at such a great point. You know, to me, I'm, what I meant was, you know, appropriate uh, stories when it's appropriate, right? When it's something that you have something to say about. But yes, absolutely. First of all, we need more voices in audio drama. Um, I love the the different number of, you know types of stories, uh, types of people, um, locations, cultures that are starting to show up in audio drama. And I, I want to find more of them. Um, but you hear a lot of great ones on Sonic Society, on Radio Drama Revival that you, you sort of learn about that opens your eyes to this whole other way of living and thinking. Um, that's one of the wonderful things about this medium. Um, but they're just, you know, there are stories that are not mine to tell. And I think just being cognizant of that, being aware of that, being respectful of that um, is, is really important as you're writing and as you're creating. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm writing a story that includes characters that aren't like me, I'm gonna try to do that research. I'm gonna try to, to talk to people who, who live that life. And in most cases, what I can do is, is have those characters in my story as part of the world no big deal. And I'm talking about LGBTQ characters. I'm talking about, um, you know, characters from different ethnic backgrounds, parts of the world. Uh, their stories are not my stories to tell. That, that falls to someone else. But we as writers, um, you know, if you're a boring, straight white guy like me, we can at least include characters who represent the world without trying to make this their story or something like that, if that, if that makes sense. Um, Aaron Sorkin was talking about that, saying, you know, the best thing he can do is, is just include a wide variety of people because that, is, that reflects the world, that is the world. He's not trying to speak for them. He's not trying to tell their personal story necessarily. He's just trying to represent the world as it actually is. So another very deep question, but it's a, a great distinction to make, I think. It's a, what about it's a bit of the Apu dilemma, you know, yes. whereas, you, whereas you want to include uh, a, a diverse selection of characters, but you also have to be very cautious about how you cast those characters and make sure that you're doing that appropriately. Um, it's a real struggle. And I think, Bob, you, you hit it right on the head that, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, your story. So if that is a story you feel compelled to tell, you should be engaging people from that community to make sure that you're not just whistling Dixie. Um, you know, I, I, I do thank Mel Brooks for making sure that we can always make fun of the Germans. <laughs> um, they're, they're, I, I think, I'm pretty sure we're safe always making fun of Germans. But I'm everybody else, every, yeah, exactly. But everybody else is sort of, you know, you have to be, cautious about how you are portraying people and making sure that it is not just equitable, but you know, you're not using, as, as Bob, you said, you know, a, a middle, middle-aged middle-class white guys take on, you know, an LGBT black teen in the inner city. Like 
I can't write that voice. I, I can barely write women, you know, and, and, and not very well at that. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's challenging. So I would say if that's, if that's something you're drawn to, do what Bob says, do the research, but then do the back end research and talk to people from that community about, if, if you're telling that story, you're not making them a clear, you're telling that story, talk to them about, hey, how does this, how do I do this? And, and use their voice in your story. Michael, what are your thoughts? Um, I really can't add much to that. I think that's, I think they hit it right on the head. Um, that's exactly right. Um, you wanna be respectful. Um, you wanna know your limitations as, as far as that goes and um, any limitations that you have, um, investigate it and uh, you know, seek it out and um, don't be afraid of it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I would, I would concur with my, my friend there. Great. Yeah, it's a, it's a, Sticky wicket. There's lots of concerns. I've heard. I'm I'm out here in uh, California in the San Francisco Bay Area, so I've heard strong things of like you need to include people that are not like you. How the hell can you write them? That's not your story to tell. And it can be like, well, what do I do? Um, as an oral storyteller, which was my first medium, I never felt comfortable telling traditional tales from other cultures. So I always did something from my Germanic, Scandinavian, English background because it felt like a tradition. And so maybe that's always my line that I go back to is what feels like it's really something that can come through me. And then if there's times that there is a tale that I really like, and I would like to tell, but it isn't mine, maybe I think, what is it about that tale that is really resonating with me? And how can I look at things from my own culture that are my stories to tell that is hitting something that maybe I didn't see before? And then I can go back to those stories and go, oh, I'm not going to hybridize or take a little smorgasbord from here to there, but go, maybe there's an element in there that I can ramp up because that's what was emotionally attracting me. If it was something other than just the exoticness of a different voice or a different culture or something like that. But these are, I think, uh, important things for us all to, to think about, not just because of the current political climate, but from an artistic point of view of how do we create art versus just something else? And, um, you know, it's always an exploration. Are there any other questions? Because that is everything that we have from the panels. We have about two or three more minutes left. Um, so why don't we, uh, what, what do you guys have coming up? Um, what, what's going on in your production world? Uh, Bob, why don't we start with you again? And um, what do you got coming up? Yeah, I'm writing. I'm writing Great. right now. So I am at the tail end of a, a mini series that's sort of a, a adventure serial um, inspired by one of my favorites, uh, The Shadow see back there so i am yeah so i'm i'm playing around with with uh putting the finishing touches on that and can't wait to get back in the studio with it great michael what about you uh we just wrapped up the, what i'm calling the first season of the temp and um we have the first two episodes of what we're calling our second season in post-production right now and uh we're going to be making some changes and enhancing some things and possibly even maybe get a little bit uh, more music into the production. I don't know. Anyway, oh. um, that's in, uh, that's in post-production. We're hoping to get at least the first episode of season two out by the end of the year. Great. And Bill, what's coming up for you? So I'm just finishing up teaching my first semester of a, a introduction to audio class. So this, 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 cool. this, it was amazing that this, our class ends on Monday and like I, Robert is one of the people that's actually taking my class. So it's nice to see him here. But um, this totally coincides so nicely as a, as a coda to six weeks of introducing new writers to the, to the genre, the, the larger genre of audio writing. 
Um, so uh, I'm finishing that up and, and I'm actually working to reopen a theater, um, uh, sort of getting the physical space back in order. And, and once I have a room again, I can start writing again, so. Great. And uh, I know that uh, we're gonna be, a, I'm sorry. Can I, make a, can I make a request of our, Absolutely. our gracious host, Jack Ward? Uh, Jack, I, I tried to dash off this question in the last panel and it was, it was incoherent, so. I'm asking you here uh, more straightforward. Is there a way, can we do like a shared Google doc or something where all these creators can just drop links to their work? Cause I, if, if you guys have stuff online, if folks in the, who are listening today have stuff online, they want to share. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to click around, get some new shows, new ideas. So, and, and, and wonderful panel. Thank you everyone. This was fantastic. And I have to close it off very shortly. So when you talk resources though, Bob, we're, we're, we're talking like I have a database where I create my own sound effects and I put those up for people. I have a place where I have public domain sources because I database everything, right? So if I find links for public domain stories, I put it up there. If I find links for pictures that are public domain, I put it up there. So I, I have I a think, bunch I of Bob, places. I think Bob just means... Um, like links to like, like you might want to hear my show, sort of the Crimson Tatters. Exactly. Where do I find oh, yeah. it? Where yeah. do we find Sonic Society? Where do we find all those great yeah. Sonic Echo episodes? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, and we used to have uh, sort of like yellow pages of, of stuff like that. And we don't do, people don't do that anymore because stuff changes so often, so quickly. If you do go to the Sonic Society, you can find a ton of links of a ton of I, different- I think he's also meaning specifically for the convention. So if we have like a page or something like even on a, you know, the website okay. or something like that. <laughs> Thanks, Lothar. We're narrowing this down. Okay. We will put a page up for people's links of resources of where their shows are, if that's what you're asking for sure. Yeah, I yes. think, I think you, you could probably cut and paste the Google doc of all of our bios. Yeah. That'd be a good with just the links on it. Like, I, I know you yeah. have everybody as a speaker, but if it was one page, that was all the. Yeah. Attendees all, all too, though. Attendees. Yeah, I attendees want to share shared workspace, shared link space. Just. Drop your link for your work. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Project three hundred and seventy-five thousand, Jack. So uh, we'll we get in on that. <laughs> Sorry, Jack. Yeah. yeah Thank you. In your free time. Let me uh, close up here so uh, Jack can move on to the next one because that's all the time we have for Approach Your Project. And uh, thank you, everyone. Bob Arnold, Bill Arrowwood, and Michael Wilhelm, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. You'll be able to see all of them throughout the rest of this weekend. And thank you to all of you attendees who came to join us and gave us really great questions. Next up, we have story structure. In just about 15 minutes, 1 p.m. Eastern with moderator David Alt and panelist Steve Schneider, Tony Sarekia, Neil Jones, and Bob Arnold. So we hope to see you all there. Thanks again for everybody. Thanks for having us, guys. Yep. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. That was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. We invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the Matinee and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.